On this episode of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, we discuss the Supreme Court decision on the vaccine mandate, the updated CMS guidance for the mandate, discuss recent experiences with policies and procedures, and in our focus segment, discuss data analytics with Amit Jawani, Director of Analytics for Surgical Information Systems. This episode of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey is sponsored by Surgical Information Systems, SIS. SIS's mission is to deliver solutions and services that help surgery providers, regardless of care setting, improve their organization so they can deliver the highest level of care to their patients. For more information, go to sisfirst.com. Welcome to episode 149 of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey for January 17th, 2022, recording from our studios in Spencerport, New York. This is Sue Cronkite, Chief Researcher for the ASC Podcast with John Gailey and Senior Nurse Consultant for Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies. Joining me is John Gailey, the owner of Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies and recognized as one of the nation's leading experts in the ambulatory surgery industry. Mr. Gailey is the author of over 10 books on the ASC industry and a frequent industry speaker on regulatory accreditation and finance issues. And we are snowed right in we, here. We are. The, I, <laughs> I, don't, I think the plow finally came. So, mm-hmm. but, it, uh, it, but we have no desire to go we out. We have anyways. no desire to go out. We're very happy where warm. we are right now. All of our cars are covered with at least, Gosh. looks like a foot and a half mm-hmm. of snow, and it's very wet snow. So those of you that yeah. uh, live in the, the north know what we're talking about. But for those of you in the south that don't know about snow, there's different types of snow, and this is the heaviest and the, and the worst. But it is a good excuse to stay in the house and not go anywhere. It is. And on our company uh, virtual meeting this morning, Anne, who lives in Florida, yeah. said that winter had hit there. It was 59 degrees. That's right. She and she did not get any sweater. pity from any <laughs> of the rest of us <laughs> as we're huddled yeah, under. They, they have to rub it in, don't they? Mm-hmm. It's been uh, it's been interesting, but it's nice we're uh, it, being snowed in. We still, of course, can't escape the work since we've always worked out of mm-hmm. the home anyway here. So yeah, uh, and of course we thought we would uh, try to get this episode out and maybe another one out before the end of the week. We are really behind, Sue. Yeah, but we uh, are getting caught up. We are getting caught Definitely up. Definitely trying to get some out. So last week had a lot of surveys, uh, three surveys in one week. Uh, they all were very good. Congratulations to all of our centers, and you know who you are. Uh, you did a great job preparing for the surveys and. Uh, Thank you for all the, the hard work that you you uh, did getting ready. And it's always great. It, you know, I know so many of the surveyors um, mm-hmm. that it is great. The last survey that, that we had last week, uh, two of the surveyors, actually all three of the surveyors were good friends of mine. So yeah. uh, we had a nice, uh, nice time talking and uh, just comparing notes and figuring out what the uh, the new changes in all the regulations are and how that's going to affect our lives. We're going to mm-hmm. talk about that in a minute here. Uh, but the vaccine mandate is going to result in a number of significant changes for mm-hmm. uh, surveys moving forward. And then last week, I oh, Sue, I, I know you were not able to join me, but I had this yep. uh, wonderful opportunity to visit Value Health's Move facility in West 
Chester, Pennsylvania. It's a joint replacement complex in, uh, in Pennsylvania. And the complex includes a surgery center and a recovery uh, care center right across the hall from the surgery center. Uh, the patient care is provided by a care team that organizes all the steps in the process working with the patient. It's really a, a wonderful process. And uh, I do want to thank Liz, Joe, Donna, and Tina, who gave me a wonderful tour. And then we had an opportunity for a couple hours afterwards to kind of talk about the, the facility and how it could be replicated in other parts mm -hmm. of the country. So uh, we'll be working uh, with Value Health, hopefully, as we uh, move forward on uh, trying to bring that concept to other parts of the country. Yeah, I know you were impressed and really excited about, about it, this. It was. Well, and it's nice to be able to walk. You know, one, one thing that's nice, I spent so much time in these smaller facilities mm -hmm. in, uh, in New York. So when we went out to this wide open facility, and it's only two rooms, but there is plenty of room. And of course, you need need a lot of room when you're doing joint uh, replacement surgery, but what a gorgeous facility. You should be very proud of it. And what's neat about this concept and is uh, for these patients, now, you know, there's a lot of different ways you can do joint replacement. You can, you know, it's possible for somebody to even go home after a joint replacement surgery, uh, but that's not always the best alternative for uh, for some patients. So the way this is designed is uh, you have the procedure done, you're, you visit the facility well before you, you have your surgery. Uh, while your surgery is going on, your significant other or whoever joined you will uh, will be able to stay in this uh, suite. Uh, it's kind of like a figured like a you know, a, a four-star hotel mm -hmm. uh, right across the hall from the surgery center. Uh, and then when uh, when you are fully recovered from the procedure, you're discharged from the facility, just like you would be in a surgery center. But then you go and you spend overnight over in the uh, in the recovery care center. I don't know if that's the right term for it, but it's, uh, it is, uh, yeah, they call it suites. And, uh, you know, you have your own little suite, but you have communal, um, you know, meals. Um, and uh, you're, you're given physical therapy as well as uh, any other support that you might need. But it is a great concept, which I, uh, I hope takes off and uh, and uh, be our pleasure to be working with uh, a center like that. So the other neat thing about it is this type of center is truly the wave of the future in terms of cost also because uh, – it seems like the uh, the cost of doing the surgery, that, which is an all-inclusive package deal, is about half of what they would spend in the average hospital. So, again, great concept. So let's move on to the news. So the biggest news this week, uh, or this since the last episode that we did, uh, was certainly the Supreme Court's decision on the vaccine mandate. So uh, uh, let's uh, let's start, Sue, with a little bit of history. Okay, so on December 28, 2021, the Center for Clinical Standards and Quality slash Quality Safety and Oversight Group issued QSO-22-07 all, which is a CMS quality safety and oversight memo that provided the regulatory guidance for the administration's vaccine mandate for Medicare certified healthcare providers, including ambulatory surgery centers. This memo, which we talked about in depth in episode 147, dated December 30th, 2021, required providers to assure all employees were eventually fully vaccinated from COVID and allowed certain limited exemptions for religious and medical reasons. So the important thing about that uh, December 28th letter is that it was a revision to the conditions for coverage. So this goes to the highest level of regulatory oversight. Uh, and that QSO also provided the interpretive guidelines that will go along with that, that surveyors are going to use in order to determine your compliance with the conditions for coverage, specifically these conditions for coverage uh, upon any Medicare deemed status survey. Uh, or uh, a state survey if you have a you know your state doing it. Mm -hmm. uh, and just a reminder that CMS set the following deadlines for those states that were not subject to the temporary hold. 
So, uh, and again, you can go back to episode 147 uh, if you want to listen to that very long explanation there. <laughs> but I just wanted to give a quick and uh, quick update, a quick uh, summary of the dates. So, if you are not part of that temporary hold by January 27th, 2022, covered healthcare providers must have policies and procedures in place addressing the mandate, which include all the things that we talked about in episode 147. They have to have 100% of their staff must have received at least one dose of the COVID-19 vaccine or have a pending request for or have been granted an exemption or have been identified as needing a temporary delay in receipt of the vaccine. An acceptable delay may be necessary if a staff member has recently had COVID-19 or for other medical reasons. And if a provider does not meet the above criteria but can show that 80% of its staff were vaccinated or received an acceptable exemption or delay, and the provider has a plan in place to achieve 100% vaccination by March 28, 2022, then the provider will not be subject to additional enforcement actions at that time. Keep in mind that they do have the ability to call an immediate jeopardy if you're not in compliance. And then by February 28, 2022, covered healthcare providers must demonstrate that they have 100% of their staff fully vaccinated with all the necessary doses to complete the vaccine series, which means like one dose of a single dose vaccine, such as J&J, or all the doses of multiple dose vaccines, or have been granted an exemption. Uh, and by the way, note that they actually, by then they have to be granted that exemption, not just have it in place or, uh, you know, applied for or identified as needing a temporary delay prior to the receipt of the vaccine. So that's just a quick uh, update of what the regulations were that were published on December 30th. And again, that applies to all states that were not part of that lawsuit. We should also mention, Sue, that remember that some states, such as New York and California mm-hmm. and New Jersey, they have uh, their own vaccine mandates, yeah. which uh, are different from the federal mandate. So in those cases, you have to take the two mandates, the state and the federal one, mm-hmm. and figure out in each case which is the more um, the more uh, stringent one more is stringent. what you have to follow. Correct. Yes. So then, as we all know, the attorneys general of Missouri and Louisiana filed a lawsuit against the administration, which was signed on by 24 uh, states and resulted in a preliminary injunction, which stopped the enforcement of the, van, uh, the mandate in those states. Uh, and those states were Alabama, Alaska, Arizona, Arkansas, Georgia, Idaho, Indiana, Iowa, Kansas, Kentucky, Louisiana, Mississippi, Missouri, Montana, Nebraska, New Hampshire, North Dakota, Ohio, Oklahoma, South Carolina, South Dakota, Utah, West Virginia, and Wyoming. And the Biden administration applied for a stay of the injunctions in both the Missouri and Louisiana lawsuits. And if granted, the stay would have allowed CMS to continue implementing the mandate in the additional 24 states as the cases continue to work their way through the appeals court. A separate lawsuit was filed by Texas, which also resulted in a preliminary injunction preventing the implementation in that state. But however, that was not part of the Biden administration's request for a stay. And then on January 13th, 2022, the U.S. Supreme Court issued a ruling on the uh, CMS vaccination regulations. And the ruling upheld the vaccine mandate for healthcare workers employed by ASCs, which have Medicare certification, actually for all Medicare certified uh, providers, but Mm -hmm. we only care about ASCs here, of course. Mm -hmm. Um, So it is important to note that, uh, that in those states other than Texas, so basically the regulations now require every state in the country other than Texas 
to uh, start the process and, and eventually become fully vaccinated. Uh, note, uh, also, I know there was a lot of publicity surrounding the court's decision to not allow the OSHA mandate to go forward, but that doesn't affect ASCs really in any way since the CMS is uh, much more stringent. And then on January 14th, 2022, CMS issued another quality safety and oversight memo, QSO-22-09 all, that required healthcare workers in the 24 states that were part of the lawsuit and mentioned previously, uh, they now have extended deadlines and will need to get their first shot by February 14th and that final shot by March 15th. So hopefully I've explained that carefully <laughs> so everyone understand. We will provide uh, links in the uh, show notes for all of these uh, uh, these QSOs for you as well of the, uh, the interpretive guidelines that went with it. We also talked about the surprise billing uh, act in our, our last episode last week, episode 148. Uh, and on uh, January 13th, our dear friends over at ASCA provided some resources for the Surprise Billing Act. So if you're a member, we really recommend that you check out that section of their website and yet another great reason to become a member of uh, ASCA. And don't forget to listen to episode 148 for a lot of information about the Surprise Billing Act. Sue, the Surprise Billing Act is uh, generating a lot of questions. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it is a very, as we talked about in episode 148, very difficult to implement. Um, and yes. I, I, I was just about to say I can't wait for more guidance, but that is really really an incorrect statement. I really don't ever want to talk about surprise billing again, but mm-hmm. I do believe it's going to be part of our lives for a while. Yes. And there's been some new guidance posted on the CDC website about cloth masks. So the um, the key points they're making is masking is a critical public health tool for preventing the spread of COVID-19. It's important to remember that any mask is better than no mask. Um, to protect yourself and others from COVID-19, the CDC continues to recommend that you wear the most protective mask that you can that fits you well and that you will wear consistently and appropriately. Masks and respirators are effective at reducing transmission of SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19, when worn consistently and correctly. And CDC's mask recommendations provide information that people can use to improve how well their masks protect them. And as we know, cloth masks can be made from a variety of fabrics, and many types of cloth masks are available. And they recommend with cloth masks to have a proper fit over the nose, mouth, and chin to prevent leaks, multiple layers of tightly woven breathable fabric, um, a nose wire so that you can can fit it um, more tightly to your nose, fabric that blocks light when held up to bright light. That's just a way of checking. And do not wear cloth masks with gaps around the sides of the face or nose, with exhalation valves, vents, or other openings, um, single-layer fabric or those made with thin fabric that doesn't block light, wet or dirty material. And I will tell you, you see people that wear the masks over and over and over again. They don't wash them or yeah. even – and I, this pretty much applies to any type of mask. You know, you want to fit tightly. You don't want there to be gaps. But um, And a lot of those masks that are out there are single material, especially, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, I've noted that a lot of organizations have been buying these masks that mm-hmm. they put their logo on. And almost yeah. all of them are, are relatively thin layered mm-hmm. masks. And, of course, unless you have five masks, you're probably not washing them every single day. Yeah. Um, and people sometimes, you know, if it's too loose, I'll see people kind of, you know, twist the elastic to fit over their ears, but often that kind of opens up a big gap on the side of your face. Yeah. So maybe knotting it or just 
getting a better fitting mask. Well, and again, those masks do have to have a nose guard in order to be able to properly mm-hmm. get it around your nose. Yep, yep. Especially if you have a big nose like mine. So <laughs> it's very difficult. No, it's more if you have a small nose because it'll just slide right <laughs> off. So we recommend that you follow these rules with your employees and, of course, encourage proper masks for people that visit um, and offer everyone a, pla- a paper mask when they come in. So, Sue, I, I know there's been some confusion about whether the CDC mm-hmm. is saying that you can wear cloth masks or not. Yeah. If you read through this, it's clear that they're kind of saying that most cloth masks really are inappropriate. Mm-hmm. But if you're going to have a cloth mask, you got to wash it constantly. you got to have a nose wire. got to have multiple yeah. layers. Uh, it's got to fo- properly fit. You can't have any gaps around it. And that's very difficult mm-hmm. with most, you know, cloth masks that are out there right now, especially those that would be, uh, um, you know, that most, uh, most, or most people would be bringing into the center. Yeah. Uh, and, of course, if you're in any other part, I mean, the only, only reason that any of your employees would be wearing a cloth mask mm-hmm. is if they're in a uh, non-clinical area. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, so, again, I think that it, it's fair to say that you really need to be very careful about these masks. And, you know, we should be providing education to our employees as mm-hmm. well as our uh, visitors and our patients as to, you know, what is the uh, proper way to wear a mask and what types of masks are most effective. Yeah. I can't tell you how many times we've visited different places and seeing the doctors there with these masks just falling off every yeah. second word they speak and they're pulling them up. And it's just not that hard to get a mask that fits well. I, I don't know why it's such a struggle. Well, I remember you know. we visited this one site and uh, the doctor is a nice, kind, older gentleman. <laughs> oh my uh, and, and I was watching the whole thing and I, I'm not like always aware of these things, but mm-hmm. uh, you were with me and uh, his mask kept falling down and he kept putting it back up and putting it down. Like and then you said to me afterwards, you know, well, you know, he had it on upside down. Yeah, the the little, you know, metal piece was Under at his chin, chin, which yeah. really isn't going to help much. So. <laughs> oh, well, so yeah. uh, more updates on masks. I think we'll be talking <laughs> about masks for the rest of our lives. I know. <laughs> I give up. And actually, we are going to have another note about masks. Um, the National Institute for Occupational Safety and Health, or NIOSH, um, has honored a request by ALG Health to voluntarily rescind all NIOSH respirator approvals issued to ALG Health. And we can provide that link because there's like 13. Take a look at that and make sure you don't have any. Very good. So, Stu, we've had some uh, recent experiences uh, with a survey. um, And most recently, kind of a interesting issue popped up, and that had to do with policies and procedures. So during the survey uh, with one of our clients recently, um, we noted that that during the survey, it became apparent that the staff – uh, didn't know where the policy manual was, didn't even have access to the policy man- manual. And of course, therefore, you know, there's no way that they could have read it. And uh, the staff had signed off on doing the educational program, but it was apparent that they actually had not done it. And that newly hired staff were allowed to start work without going through that training. Um, so it, it really sparked a whole conversation with this particular client and a conversation among ourselves as to, you know, how do we make it very clear to our clients uh, the importance of the policy manual. We just thought it might be a good thing to kind of uh, uh, discuss on the podcast here. So let's just talk a little bit about the importance of policies and procedures. So it's important to remember that you're held to your policies, even if they go above and beyond any regulations. So you have to be sure that they're accurate. You know, sometimes people, they, they put things in that they would like to do, but maybe they're not doing yet. 
And you really just don't want to do that because whatever you say you're going to do, you have to do it. Yeah, for example, you know, the, the some of the accrediting organizations only require mm-hmm. you to have one nurse uh, who has uh, ACLS. Mm-hmm. Um, but we have a, a number of clients that say that every one of their employees are mm-hmm. going to be ACLS certified. And yeah. there was actually a problem with one particular yeah. organization in that they had this policy and yet they had just hired a brand new nurse manager mm-hmm. who hadn't yet gone through the ACLS training and was pending. So, so just, yeah, thinking the, that through because it was very important to them that that the nurses are all trained. Right. But we ended up just having to add that, you know, they would have six months to get there. Because if you get a really good candidate, you know, and you may want to just allow that time for right. them to, to get that. So. so, and again, keep in mind that you're, at least most accrediting organizations, certainly the ones we work mm-hmm. with, don't require everybody to be ACLS. Yeah. But if you do decide to have all of your staff doing it, that's mm-hmm. great. Just recognize you're above the standards there and you yeah. need to enforce that in your organization. So during a survey, we as surveyors are still going to cite you even though mm-hmm. it wasn't a regulatory requirement. Yeah, you certainly can't say, well, requirement. You certainly just can't say, well, it's, you know, it's not required. We were just trying to do better because once you've put it in writing like that. Um, And so remember, the policies are very specific to your organization so that no matter how experienced a new employee is, they have to read and understand your policies before they start. And I I ran into this. So I did a survey recently of an organization that's affiliated with a very large management company. And when we went into the policy manual, it was very generic. Mm -hmm. Um, and all of the policies would say things like, if you do GI procedures in your facility, and this organization didn't, um, you know, then, then this. Uh, those are, are problematic policy manuals because they really uh, kind of point to the surveyor that you have not modified your policy manual mm-hmm. for your specific organization. Yeah. And this also happens a lot when people like buy policy manuals. We really recommend you do not buy a policy manual, that you work with an organization that's going to put a policy manual together that that's been built directly for you. Because inevitably, if you buy a policy manual out there, you're going to have to make an awful lot of revisions. Mm-hmm. And it's not going to be yours. It's going to be something that you're going to constantly be revising and and can be quite problematic. And again, I really need to emphasize that your employees, every one of your employees, mm-hmm. without exception, has to read that policy manual, uh, as well as go through an educational program that mm-hmm. talks about how those that policy manual uh, is actually uh, – executed in your own organization. Mm-hmm. And as you're revising or making for the first time your policy manual, if you're a new center, you know, it's good to divide some of that stuff up and make sure that the people that are doing sterile processing have a look at your sterile processing policies and, and can add any suggestions that they have to make sure you're really following, you know, what they're doing. So, you know, you can kind of divide and conquer and make sure you've got really accurate things that reflect right. what everybody's doing. And one of our organizations does this policy of the week. So what they do is they uh, they they select a policy. Actually, two of our organizations mm-hmm, do this. Mm-hmm. They select a policy. They send it out through an email for all of their staff, where they post it in the uh, the lunchroom, and then uh, they just kind of emphasize it. They mention they show what the policy is and talk about some of the ramifications for it. Uh, and that's a very good way for everybody to kind of focus on those policies, you know, very much more um, concretely and uh, specifically. And you know that's a great idea because. You even if if everybody reads the policy manual to start with, you know it's hard to absorb all of that. So if you always keep it fresh and and kind of discussing things, and maybe you'll come up with ways to change them, things you want to add or or take out. So right. it's a good idea. And even if you have a consultant, you need to work closely with that consultant to make sure that if that it reflects your actual practices. 
I think another point to make is that you should be revising your policies and procedures frequently. Of course, one of the services that we offer as part of our retainers and ambulatory healthcare strategies is, you know, keeping your policies and procedures up to date. Uh, but this requires a really close relationship between the nurse manager, the administrator, uh, and, you know, our staff uh, to make sure that those are, you know, we'll, we'll draft, um, kind of rough outline policies and procedures that then have a whole bunch of things that have to be updated or specifically tailored to your organization. But if you're not updating your policies on a regular basis, even monthly, uh, then your policies and procedures are probably falling behind the times. Uh, I think that's something that, again, this one client that we had this particular situation with, uh, they thought, they, they said beforehand, oh, have somebody review the policy manual, make sure it's all right. And, uh, you know, their nursing manager said, yeah, it's, it's, it's fine. Well, it turns out that it, it wasn't fine, that indeed there were some things that were not being done because they really hadn't taken the time to review it thoroughly. So mm-hmm. uh, so if you're not updating it frequently, you probably got a problem. And then, of course, you need to uh, you know train your staff on all of those changes that happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so it's hard for me to imagine that you can't – that you don't have like w- weekly staff meetings now. Now, mm-hmm. I don't mean like a, a big one, maybe just a huddle, huddle. where you're talking yep. about these things. But with all of these changes coming, mm-hmm. it's very difficult to keep up with them unless you're – you know, talking to your staff frequently about it. Yeah, because somebody may be dealing with the policy manual and they're thinking, okay, we're covered. We've got it in the policy manual. You know, people forget that that is like you always say, a living, breathing document. You have to not just put it in there. You have to make sure everybody understands it and is up to date, even if it changes every week. Right. And let's just briefly talk about the difference between policies and protocols. Policies, of course, are Policy manual is a document that is reviewed by and approved by the governing body. So policies are uh, those rules and regulations, shall we say, that your organization has set for themselves. A protocol... Uh, is something that might change frequently. So the difference might be you might have a policy that says that you're going to do wave testing on all of your um, patients who are of childbearing age, uh, which I hope you do. And if you if they're going to get anesthesia, but a protocol would have to do with how you would do a particular type of testing, like in this case a urine pregnancy test. Mm-hmm. Uh, you don't want to you don't want to include in your policy manual exactly how you would do that uh, urine pregnancy test because that's just too detailed and it might change. Maybe the next mm-hmm. batch of urine pregnancy tests that you get is going to be a different type, yep. which means you would be going back to the governing body every five day, you know, mm-hmm. every time you got a new batch uh, from a different uh, vendor. So uh, a protocol. Protocol is much more likely to be changed and much more specific as the step-by-step process you go through, whereas the policies, of course, are are, uh, standards that have been established for your organization. So let's talk a little bit about how we uh, do uh, policies and procedures in our organization. Maybe this will, for our clients, maybe they'll give you an idea of, uh, of a way that really works, I think. Um, and uh, is, uh, is I'm not going to say this is easy. It certainly isn't. But it is, um, it's, it, it, it rarely gets you into trouble uh, with a surveyor if you do it this way. And one thing that we do insist on is that all of our organizations have a policy manual that's in uh, one binder. A very thick binder, of course, uh, and and from an electronic standpoint, is one word document which allows you to uh, actually index um, the policy manual. So it makes it very easy to know where all the pages are that you have to go to. It's very easy to search. Use search mm-hmm. terms uh, when you're in a survey, for example, and you're trying to find every policy that relates to pediatrics. 
So, you know, and the other thing about a, um, about a single Word document, a single binder, is it really does facilitate versioning. And what I mean by versioning is you need to make sure that you can always identify the version of a policy at any point in time in case you were to get sued. Uh, so that's why a, a good way to do it. What we do is we always have an approved uh, policy manual that has been changed into a PDF. Uh, it's never a Word document. You never provide your employees with a Word document as the official policy manual. Uh, can you imagine what could happen? I mean, somebody goes through and decides that they want to change a couple words mm-hmm. on you and you don't know that. Uh, use a PDF uh, document or, you know, some organizations have uh, have intranets that, that have your policy manual. Uh, but a PDF is perfectly acceptable. And, and in many cases, you can, you know, put that on all of the, uh, the desk desktops in your organization so that people can get to it very quickly. And then we always have a, a pending document, which mm-hmm. is in Word format. Kind of a revising. In, right. Mm-hmm. It's yep. set for track changes, mm-hmm. if you're familiar with the term in, in Microsoft Word. Uh, and that way we can see all the pending changes that are out there. And then what happens is when you get to a board meeting, you take that Word document with the write-up there, and then you go to the governing body and say, these are the changes that we want to make. Uh, and once the governing body approves it, you turn off the track changes, you set everything to uh, uh, final, and you print off another PDF with the date of the approval there. Mm-hmm. So and we also is, usually have sort of a Word document in another folder where we're keeping track of all the changes we're making, you know, the date. And right. and we revised a policy or added a policy just to make it easier, too, when you go to the governing body. So here's the key takeaways is take your policies and procedures seriously. Make sure every single one of your employees knows where the policy manual is, has read it. Now, I mean, and, and I don't mean that they read and memorize every single word. Yeah. Uh, some policies are just not going to be terribly applicable to them. Mm-hmm. But it's important that they know what those policies are, even if it's not necessarily in their area. Uh-huh. I think that's a good way for making your employees feel like they're really part of a much bigger uh-huh. operation and know where they fit in with everything else. So I, I like to see our yeah. our uh, our clinical staff know what's going on in the business office and the business staff knowing what's going on in the clinical space. So, you know, those, you know, like the clinical staff doesn't have to read and memorize every business office policy or even uh-huh. read it in detail, but they should know that those policies exist and know where to find them if they ever needed uh, to do that. And likewise, uh, you know, uh, a business office staff doesn't need to know the clinical policies in detail, but it's always a good idea to uh, uh, to have them be familiar with those policies. And it seems obvious, but make sure that everybody has access to the policy manual at all times. Yeah. Don't have it locked in somebody's office. If it's on, you know, on your computer, if it's an online version, make sure that everybody can access that folder because we do have problems where people, you know, or maybe they can access it, but nobody's told them where it is. They give it to them at the beginning, they read it, and then it's tucked away in somebody's office and nobody knows where it is and they need to be able to find it if they need to see it. And here's a quick hint. Uh, If your policy manual has dust on it, uh, or the pages (laughs) are not worn out, (laughs) um, you might have a problem. So... Well, I, I think we've uh, we've beat that one to death a little bit, but uh, I think it's extremely important for uh, for us to remember the importance of our policy manuals. So let's take a short break, and we'll come back with uh, an interview with our sponsor SIS with Amit uh, Jawani, who is the director of analytics at Surgical Information Systems, and he he's going to talk about um, uh, data analytics, which. It is a lot more exciting than the title itself might sound. So please stand by because I think you're going to find this a a fascinating discussion, especially as you uh, start considering the implementation of uh, 
electronic medical record systems. And Amit is going to really spend some time talking about how important EMRs are going to be for the future and the benefits of, of uh, having a, uh, a, an electronic medical record beyond the obvious ones of having a different way of document information and being able to, to retrieve it from an electronic standpoint. So mm-hmm. let's take that break and we'll be back. When it comes to the financial outcomes of your ambulatory surgery center, it has never been more important to maximize revenue, tighten the time to bill and collect payment, and reduce denials from payers. Yet without a keen focus on your revenue cycle, it can be difficult to achieve the results your center needs to remain profitable. The revenue cycle experts at Surgical Information Systems can help. With revenue cycle services from SIS, you can improve the financial health and performance of your ASC. SIS Revenue Cycle Services takes care of all aspects of the revenue cycle, including compliant coding based on documentation, claim preparation and submission, claim management, accounts receivable management, billing follow-up, month-end reconciling and closing processes, standard and customized reporting, and patient portion due and or balance management. By doing the heavy lifting, SIS Revenue Cycle Services leaves you to do what you do best, provide affordable, high-quality care. In addition to managing your revenue cycle, the SIS-RCS team uses a five-step process to monitor, analyze, and make recommendations for improvement to your revenue cycle performance. More than 50 ASCs enjoy these results from SIS Revenue Cycle Services every month. Faster claim submission, shorter time to pay, improved AR follow-up, higher net collections, expert coding to meet exact payer requirements, and an overall more consistent revenue cycle. Visit sysfirst.com to learn how the revenue cycle experts at SIS can deliver improved financial health for your ASC. Again, that's sysfirst.com to learn more about SIS Revenue Cycle Services. This is John Gale. I'm here with Amit uh, Jawani. He is uh, the Director of Analytics for Surgical Information Systems. Welcome, Amit. Thank you, John. Really glad to be here today. Uh, so that even sounded boring, frankly. You know, Director of Analytics. I'm sorry. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> the problem is you got you got a you know fascinating topic to talk about, but let's face it. You know, you put the term analytics in front of a nurse or uh, you know a typical ASC administrator, and uh, you know they're they're starting to fall asleep. So um, so I've talked to you before. Obviously, this is going to be a fascinating conversation. I just uh, I hope hopefully people didn't turn off the uh, the podcast, you know, after they heard, heard me introduce, because trust me, this is a fascinating topic to talk about. I mean, what, uh, can you introduce yeah. yourself, first of all, and, and your role over at SIS? No, uh, absolutely, John. And, and I agree with you. It, it is a fascinating topic. and uh, I geek out and I will probably <laughs> do so in this podcast. Um, the, you know, my role at, uh, at SIS is uh, around our data and analytic solutions. Um, all that jargon, Ultimately, we build solutions that our users can get actionable information out of, whether it's a clinical leader, whether it's a business leader, executive leader at ASC, or even with some of our 
uh, acute care clients, uh, working with them and I've been with SIS for over 13 years now, been in the industry close to 15 and working specifically with surgical data, perioperative data, whether it's business or administrative or clinical. Um, and how do we turn that data into actionable information? So my responsibility is working with clients, both with advisory and consulting services and professional services, as well as creating products with our product management and developer teams to, to allow for that to happen. Well, and I, I guess that gets to the heart of our conversation is that uh, data is king now. I mean, we have so much information with the internet. I mean, I started out over 30 years ago in the industry. We didn't didn't have an internet. <laughs> and uh, and by the way, I was still submitting claims for that surgery center on paper. So uh, we didn't have a lot of data other than, you know, a sheet of paper that told us that uh, uh, we did this procedure and compare that to where we are today and these wonderful computer systems that we have. But with that comes a problem. I mean, we have all of this data and we don't know what to do with it, or we don't do anything with it because it's so much information out there and we don't know what is relevant and what is helpful. I, you, you said it uh, too, is that what we ultimately want to do here is we want to try to make all of that data that we're accumulating actionable. How do we take it you know, to, uh, uh, to the next level? No, I think it, over those 30 years, you've probably seen the whole advent of the, the electronic health record, the yeah. electronic medical record advance from decades ago. It was used as a data collection tool. Right. And then from data collection and data storage, it became, well, what else can I do with it? And as yeah. those systems got sophisticated, you got into data analytics, you got into decision support, communication, real-time communication at the time of care. And I think EMRs themselves have evolved, the data collection systems have evolved to allow for some of this kind of more, what do I do with it now, now that I've collected it all? Uh, what's the value of that? Well, and that gets, so that's our, our first conversation piece here is, uh, you know, electronic medical records. So many of our surgery centers, uh, and we know just from, you know, a little bit of research that are a lot of our listeners still are on paper. And we know that, that, that our time is limited, that those centers are eventually going to have to go to an electronic medical record if, if, you know, it, it might even be mandated of us. Um, but when, when EMR vendors come out and they try to sell their product, they often spend a lot of time talking about how uh, they're going to save uh, you money or they're going to say, you know, going to be able to reduce your staffing because you won't need as many people in medical records. And of course, I've always made this argument that that's not the smartest uh, argument. First of all, I'm not sure that it's true, certainly in the short term. It seems to me like any place that implements an EMR system uh, spends to be, you know, have an awful lot more uh, time going into it because of that, that learning curve and the need for somebody with the technical expertise to be able to maintain that system. Uh, and I've always felt that that was the wrong way to sell the product. The better way to sell the product is I'm going to have so much better documentation. I'm going to have so much better uh, uh, information. So, uh, can you talk a little bit about that sales pitch? In other words, how uh, how that information is so much more valuable than uh, than any time savings that you might come out of uh, that might come out of implementing the system? I think uh, absolutely right. the The adoption of an EMR within our ASC industry, as it takes hold and as it becomes more and more ubiquitous, the market transition that's happening. Uh, both from a, a appropriate site of care. So as we see procedures being transitioned from the acute care into an ASC setting, um, or as procedures themselves get more 
less and less invasive, they, there's an opportunity to transition them into the ambulatory setting as that takes hold, as value-based um, care uh, payment models, the alternative payment models take hold. Those are all kind of the, the right substrate for us to adopt an EMR. I agree with you. I think the time savings for the person documenting either on paper or in an electronic record is not the right way to, to create the value proposition. I think there is time savings for the, the nursing leadership, the clinical leadership, um, physician leadership, as well as the administrators to, I don't have to spend hours on end massaging data, what we've dubbed on our end, Excel gymnastics to try to yeah. find that one single nugget of information. A lot of that time savings really comes on the tail end of us having digital data. And so the type of data that you collect um, becomes, like you said, better, it's richer, um, it's a lot more governed, and you're not document. It's, it's a lot more standardized. So um, the systems that exist today with the sophistication that exists today allow you to get to that nugget of information faster and multiple nuggets of information right? with just um, our, some of our ASCs that are still on paper for the electronic record. They're using a practice management solution or an ASC management solution for the business side of the house. Um, there are X, there's X amount of value that they can collect uh, and the types of information that those systems collect can do volume and productivity, your AR analysis, revenue, um, looking at contracts, even workflow efficiency, some of the, some of the more ASC-specific specialized solutions rather than your off-the-shelf practice management solutions are, are specialized enough to capture some basic workflow data. And that's great today, right? So for those centers, this isn't uh, the centers that are on paper, doesn't mean that you can't get value out of those systems the value that you get still exists out of that routinely collected data. So here's an example, um, turnover times. And it's purely an efficiency metric during the clinical workflow. It's on the day of surgery. We don't care about it prior to day of surgery. We don't care about it after the day of surgery. But turnover times is a huge driver for reducing waste and, and eliminating that out. What do you need? What are the ingredients and the data ingredients that you need? Well, I need wheels in, wheels out time. I need the time that the case was scheduled for. I need the room and the surgeon that performed the case and perhaps the circulator that was in the room if you wanted to get to the detailed ingredients that I need. Now you take that, put it into a mathematical black box and out you get a turnover time. And you do this rinse and repeat for all cases done on a given day in a given room over a given month uh, or even a longer time horizon. And now you have a pattern that you can build from it and you can identify, look, there are parts of the day where I could improve my turnover times. We yeah. start off great at the beginning of the day. So that's an example of how I took basic data elements that are being captured electronically and converted it into a metric that you know most of us can, can resonate with. That's possible with basic amount of data collection. As you get beyond the the practice management solutions and the business solutions, what you get, start to get into is quality of care metrics. So 
compliance with the surgical checklist, for example, looking at patient safety measures and patient safety outcomes. Did the quality of care provided align with the right protocols and that compliance? Um, measurement of post-op nausea and vomiting. And how often does that occur? How do you define that uh, through standardized documentation? Looking at uh, pain management, uh, normothermia and temperature management, looking at drug efficacy. And if I were to give this cocktail of drugs prophylactically, do I get a, a measurable benefit or an improved outcome in the post-op area of care, right? This could be pain, this could be antiemetics, it could be antibiotics, does it reduce infection rates? All of that richness of data, and, the, and I could keep going on and on, as you can imagine, around any one of these clinical areas. Um, the, the documentation allows for a lot of this kind of data capture to occur. Now, specialized EMR solutions allow for that data capture to occur, number one, to have sophisticated solutions that know the mathematical black box that I referred to earlier to put these data ingredients into, and then three, presenting it to the user in a very easy to use way, right? Not everyone's a data geek like I am. You don't need to be. And I think that's the, that's the great thing about where we are today from a technology perspective, both within our industry and then uh, surrounding us that there are technology tools that are sophisticated enough that allow the user to not be so sophisticated and still be a business user, a clinical user. I don't need to hire a data analyst to consume this information or make sense of it. Um, I think technology exists out there as the EMRs have gotten more sophisticated, data collection tools have gotten more sophisticated, the data analysis tools have gotten just as sophisticated. And I think all of that sophistication, what it allows a user to do is not have to be as sophisticated to consume that information because they know what that, the picture is worth a thousand words. And they're able to, to consume that, that easily. And I think a lot of this, uh, wherever an ASC is um, today in their technology adoption, whether it's just on the business side or the administrative side, or even completely into the clinical realm as well, there is value to get from every one of those um, slices of technology adoption, right? So do we want the industry to have the EMR? Yes, the, the value kind of, reviewing back what you said, isn't necessarily just time savings up front, but it's time savings in the analysis phase of it um, for the leadership and, and to find that actionable information. But even if you haven't gotten to that point yet, there's value to be had with every layer of the technology that you have adopted today. Well, you bring up a very important point that is almost a passion of mine is that we, we find when uh, people are evaluating uh, both EMR systems as well as just the practice management systems in an ASC, that they they sometimes look at at systems that were not designed specifically for ASCs, and that's a bit of a frustration for me. Is that I really I can't imagine being able to gather the type of information that we need 
for quality improvement, for for billing, for for every other aspect of our operation, without uh, having a system that's been designed specifically for an ASC. And I'm just being blunt, not not just because SIS is one of our sponsors, but simply, you know, as you've just described, so many of the data elements we have just don't exist in the average uh, physician practice. Yeah. And 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 you can't go for a hospital system because you can't afford that six seven figure you know price tag that goes with it. So um, the value proposition here really is uh, that you're going to be able to get information that's going to make your business better. Uh, but and you know to your point, yeah, I, I'm passionate about quality improvement. Obviously, uh, so much of what we do is just gathering information, raw data off of spreadsheets, off of checklists, and things like that. And yet the computer allows us to be able to gather that information in a completely different way and accumulate it in a consistent manner. Uh, so talk a little bit again about, uh, about how important it is uh, and, and the difference between, just be more, more specific about uh, the difference between a practice management system and an ASC system. Absolutely. So I think going back to kind of that turnover time example that yeah, I used. Right? That's a good and, one. And, yeah. and similar types of examples. So uh, a, a off-the-shelf practice management solution may not allow you to capture that level of information, right? So even if- Or normal thermia or- yeah, right, any of, Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Exactly, right? So so I'll use a more complicated example, right? That may, they may resonate with our, our nursing leaders and, and our listeners that- um, sort of lean more on the clinical side. So post-op nausea and vomiting incidents. Yeah. So the post-op nausea and vomiting incidents typically isn't captured um, at the point of care, even for sophisticated hospital um, surgery departments. We have to impute that. And, and, and I'm going to preface this. It's going to come into two parts of that level of sophistication that we've been discussing around specialized ASC solutions or specialized surgery solutions, um, both practice management as well as EMR, is one, do I capture the data? So for example, post-op nausea and vomiting incidence rates, I wanna see what antiemetics were given to the patient during the intraoperative phase of care. So one, I have an intraoperative phase of care where I'm doing clinical documentation. I know who's in the room. I know what procedures being performed and what drugs are being administered. And not just that, there's some standardization and normalization that's done to that drug formulary, right? So I know what my antiemetics are. I know what my prophylactic antiemetics are. And then when that same patient comes into the recovery phase of care, I have that information that flows through and now I can capture, did the patient experience nausea and vomiting or not? And, and however that's being captured, generally you're not telling the patient or the patient's not telling you like they do with a pain score, can you rank your nausea and vomiting on a scale of one to 10? And so the best way to determine that we've, we've identified over years of research is if you were to give a rescue med in in the recovery phase of care, because John, you had this procedure and now you're feeling nauseated and, and you feel like you're going to vomit. Let me give you a medication that will help resolve that. And so if you, we administer that medication, that tells me John was feeling POMD, right? Post-op nausea and vomiting. And so now I can check that box. Like that is an incidence of post-op nausea and vomiting. 
Now I'm getting quite detailed with this. I want you to take that and imagine if you had to do that through Excel. Yeah. Right. Imagine doing that just for one patient, John, in Excel and not doing that rinse and repeat every single time because there's no efficiency in being able to do so. So how do you do that? So it's not as something as simple as take column A and column B and add it together or subtract yeah. it or multiply it. It's a, it's a much more sophisticated of, uh, of, a, of a math problem. And so that's where the second layer of sophistication comes in. The first layer of sophistication, that specialized ASC solution, allows you to capture that data that I spoke about, right? Medications administered intraoperatively, medications administered in the recovery phase of care, whether it's PACU or post-op or step-down, um, and the type of medication that's captured, the time that it was captured. All of that's raw documentation, but it requires a specialized system. The second layer of sophistication is taking all of those raw ingredients of data and putting that in the right black box to determine, yes, this patient experienced post-op nausea and vomiting, and the next patient did not experience post-op nausea and vomiting. And now I aggregate that over a large number of patients, whether it's for the month, whether it's for the year, and I start to do patterns. And all right, is there a difference in the type of medication given that the patients experience PONV or don't experience PONV? Is there a correlation to the amount of time that they were under anesthesia care if it's above 60 minutes, below 60 minutes, or you can stagger that out. You can start to imagine the type of analysis that can become possible. And imagine a clinical leader, somebody, um, even in the physician leadership, whether it's anesthesia or surgery, that will typically you know, uh, get really, really interested in looking at this type of information. Oh, show me that you can correlate anesthesia durations to um, the type of medication given or to an outcome that was uh, experienced in the recovery phase of care, right? We're getting into the weeds here with this particular example, but kind of coming back up, the sophistication for the data capture solution required must exist for this type of analysis to happen. And the sophistication on the data analytics solution that works in hand with that, um, with that EMR solution or even the practice management solution must exist. ASC-specific practice management solutions, not even the EMR solutions, but just even the practice management solutions that are designed for the ASC, mm -hmm. um, capture a little bit more of that clinical workflow data than does your typical practice management solution. Um, and I think even that is of a lot of benefit because those workflow efficiencies, we all understand AR, revenue, volume. Those are probably kind of table stakes to play the game. But when you look at workflow efficiency, even with the practice management solutions, our ASCs can measure first case on time starts, turnover times, scheduling accuracy, patient in room to incision times and how long that takes, or patient in room to induction, induction to incision, and looking at that workflow, the time that the patient is spending from the time that the pre-op period ends to the time that they go under anesthesia and they're falling asleep. That time, the patient anxiety research has shown is at its highest. There's a lot of these types of patient experience, quality of care, workflow metrics that 
um, can be can be realized just with a practice management solution. And then the the value just abounds as you adopt the EMR piece. That's a that's a really great example. And and, and so um and and of course uh, you're geeking out a little bit, which is okay. But I want to put it um, I so so for our listeners. Let me translate that into one of our biggest challenges, and that is being able to do QI studies and performance improvement projects. Because what you have just described is that nightmare that all of our our uh, our listeners have to go through in order to put together a good QI study and performance improvement project, and, and they're having to do those things that you just described, you know, on the spreadsheets, but your computer system did it for you, um, and. Just as important, since the computer, if you if your system is designed well, that is gathering this information anyway, it can help to identify QI studies that you could be doing that you might not have even you know necessarily uh, uh, brought up. You know, by having not only that data being collected, but also you know part of a uh, like a dashboard that uh, identifies uh, you know very critical issues. So, great example, um, I think of of how to make it relevant to. Uh, to things that, um, you know, that we have to worry about, you know, as part of our surveys, uh, part of our quality improvement program. But you said something earlier, what I really want to go back to is that it doesn't end there. You know, it's not just about quality improvement. It's not just about documentation. Our world, our industry is moving in a different direction right now. And that's what we call, you know, like value-based payment systems. Um, And so um, I guess my important point I want to make here is this is going to impact ultimately your bottom line. It's not just going to get you past the survey. It's not going to just, um, you know, improve the quality of care. It's going to be an important part of documenting that improvement in quality care, which will hopefully turn into payment system. You want to talk a little bit about, you know, where you are right now with adapting these systems to the ongoing or to the, uh, the upcoming and anticipated uh, value-based payment systems. Absolutely. I think there's, um, with the with the alternative payment models, these value-based payment systems, as they're coming online, there's going to be a revenue pressure. Right? Right. So, so revenue is um, uh, is going to be key to keep an eye on. The second part of that for ASCs uh, as they're adopting some of these payment models is creating cost transparency. Yeah. Um, right. We've heard about cost transparency for the patient as a as an educated consumer of healthcare. Uh, cost transparency for the healthcare providers. What does it cost me to do this um, this particular procedure or combination of procedures for this particular patient? And having visibility to that and understanding the financial risk profile of a patient um, is going to become crucial as you move into a value-based care payment model. And so uh, what our effort has been... Um, I think the industry's effort has been is how do we take the routinely captured data and start to build that cost profile, right? I know I will get paid X amount for doing this procedure and and perhaps not just the procedure, but even the the full care episode, right? Whether it's prehab, whether it's recovery, whether it's PT, what have you, if all of that's bundled together. In addition to that, identifying what's the direct cost on the case for supplies, implants, biologics, equipment, what have you. What's the staff cost, the labor cost on the case that's direct. 
what are the indirect costs on the case that get attributed for keeping the lights on at the facility and building that cost equation. Some of our ASCs have generally focused on, let me just get access to my direct supplies and implants cost. And there's a lot, that's a large chunk of the cost for the case. Um, And as you start to layer on labor, indirect costs and, and what have you, now you can do a profitability equation, right? Because here's what my revenue is going to be. That's set in stone. I know what that is. Here's what my um, cost looks like for this type of procedure. And, and creating that cost transparency and that cost management tool set allows an ASC to determine, do I want to take on this bundle or not? Is this going to be um, a fruitful exercise, a profitable exercise? Um, or perhaps it's going to be a lost leader, but at least you're going into that decision eyes wide open. And, and, um, you, and you might decide to do that because you know that the doctor is exactly. going to bring other very profitable cases, right? I, exactly. I do want to point something exactly. out here because uh, one thing that we've talked about quite a bit on the podcast and quite a bit in the, and in our conferences is be, be very careful about the use of indirect costs in these analyses, because indirect costs, because they vary so dramatically based upon the volume, um, can really skew those numbers. Like if you're not profitable yet, uh, you don't want to use your overhead costs as part of that decision as to whether to take on additional cases. If you've got a positive uh, uh, revenue over direct costs and you're not profitable, forget completely um, the um, uh, uh, the overhead costs because everything that you you generate there and above above and beyond the direct costs are going to um, uh, you know contribute to uh, reducing the amount of unpaid overhead. Sorry, I'm geeking out now. Um, no, no, <laughs> but it's such that, an important that, that's thing. Absolutely that, right. Yeah, yeah, and and what we've seen um, at least from uh, from my days on on the acute care side is a lot of those surgery departments that were probably running sort of on all eight cylinders and, and at full capacity um, have looked at avenues to convert from a unit based where the unit is uh, case to the unit being time yeah. for those indirect costs, so switching to a time-based activity versus a, a number of cases performed um, times operational costs. So there's some opportunities to, to, to flex on that and, and get a little bit more sharper with our tools um, to predict the cost. Have you uh, uh, had any ex- uh, experience recently with any of the value-based payment systems? I know they're kind of in their inf- infancy. I'm just kind of curious as to whether, um, you know, in your in your traverses, you've seen these systems actually uh, in place and uh, and being used as part of the payment system. Um, it's it's been primarily with the with bundles. Yeah. Um, that's, and it's, it's very sporadic. We, we probably should define, uh, bundles oh, there. That's yes. when you, when you bundle like the anesthesia, the surgery, um, uh, the, the facility and any like follow-up care also. So it's all one fee that one of the organizations, uh, bundles together. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no, I appreciate the, the, the definition there. And so that's really been my experience in the, in the ASC side to, to create that bundle. Yeah. Um, and, and the question that the administrators ask is I'm being presented with this bundle. Um, should I take it or not? Yeah. And how do I determine that taking this bundle with X number of case cases being performed in a given year is going to yield profit? 
Um, that's really where the conversation comes in. It's been episodic. It hasn't been very ubiquitous. So I'll tell you that. On yeah. the acute care side, it's been a lot more, um, yeah. not just beyond bundles, but they, they've adopted, especially with uh, some of the organizations that we work with that are ACOs or part of that ACO organization, um, that um, the conversation is, is definitely different. Um, yeah. and, and they're asking for, um, for, give me all of the data, show me how much it costs, show me who did what case, how many times, and and they the, the the health systems the larger entities there have the the analysts and the wherewithal to absorb raw data to do this kind of analysis on their own rather than reaching out to a vendor to do so uh, or a solution partner to do so. On the ASC side, this is it. Right, you need you need a solution that kind of works out of the box, yeah. and so those are some of the things to for our, our listeners to start to, to catalog in their mind as I'm evaluating these solutions, right? Look for EMR capabilities that are specialized to the ASC. Look for data and analytics capabilities that are that are specialized and geared towards the ASC. Um, when you look at analytics type tools, there's a couple of different ways to go with it, right? Do I do I find a technology partner that builds this awesome great technology but has no knowledge of my industry, but they've yeah. built a really great widget. I just have to retrofit that widget to my data, um, right? So you could go out and buy a business intelligence tool, and there's plenty out there and that, that, that do quite well in different industries um, versus the other side of the spectrum is somebody that's a domain expert that's leveraging some of these technologies, but they package it all together. So it's not just a great technology. You've got content knowledge, domain expertise that comes out with it. And so when you unwrap the, the box uh, um, for, for these kind of specialized solutions, some of these things come out of the box, right? So these yeah. metrics that we've been talking about, they're kind of out of the box and, and ready for you to go. So uh, you started talking about the, the whole topic of, you know, how can ASC leaders, you know, move to that next level? In other words, uh, you know, moving away from, uh, if if they're still in the uh, ice age here with a paper system, and by the way, I didn't mean to insult any of you out there because I'd say more than half of our clients are still on paper. But you know, uh, uh, you know, how do you how do you move from from that level? Or if you do already have a, a pretty sophisticated system out there, um, but you need to take it to the next level, what what things should you be looking for in a system? And especially as we add on the EMR component. So not only are we looking at the business management systems that gather this information, but the integration between them and the uh, EMR systems. Absolutely. So, you know, the, the sophisticated ASC-specific practice management solutions, ASC management solutions is, in my mind, cost of doing business, right? The market should go that way. If we can, you know, implore the market to, to start to look at some of these specialized solutions. And, and the why kind of goes back to what we first started our conversation with. Those are, those are just necessary steps to take. As we're evaluating these solutions, right, the listeners should push our the, the, the vendors that you're working with, the solution partners that you're working with to say, what about the clinical documentation? And here's the reason why. It's not just about time savings, like you mentioned, John. It's, it's right. about... The market's going to be here in due term. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when, whether it's a regulatory requirement yeah. or 
what I believe it's the payers that are going to push you, push our market into that to say, show me that you're a better side of care than that ASC yeah, down the street good. or that hospital down the street. And so our ASCs, your clients are going to have to compete on value beyond just cost. We're not just the low cost or the efficient right. provider of care. We are a quality provider of care. Here are Here's evidence for that and, and evidence rooted in data that's been collected. And that's where the puck is going, right? So how do you, uh, how do you plan for that? How do you skate towards that now? And so um, installing and getting used to these systems and onboarding them today becomes necessary um, to, to get to that point. Um, and now's the time to act on that. And so as you, as you look at these EMR solutions, that is what's necessary to prove that evidence on better quality of care, improve patient outcomes, improve clinical outcomes, improve patient satisfaction, all of those things that unfortunately cannot be proven just with a practice management solution yeah. or just with an ASC management solution, right? So that's the, the EMR piece. And then to layer onto that, right, as, uh, as you're evaluating these, um, these vendors, the, the solution partners, um, and, and right, my own employer with SIS, what are the questions that you should be asking all of us, right? And so um, how is the data getting captured? Is it truly supporting your workflow? Is it uh, malleable enough and configurable enough where it can support different types of workflows for uh, a multi-specialty center, for different types of specialties, Right, doing a cataracts versus um, uh, a, a knee scope, two very different procedures and very different time profiles, right? Can I move that fast? And does it allow? Does the system allow me to move that fast at the point of care? As you get into after everything's been documented, what can I do with it? That's where the conversation goes into data and analytics and how does that system provide me actionable information, right? Data, analytics, business intelligence, I could throw a lot of terms at you. Ultimately, mm -hmm. the question is, as an administrator, as a uh, director of nursing, as a business office manager in those roles, um, or even an executive with management companies, what? how do I get to actionable information faster? And it's timely so that I can make a decision. I'm not waiting until month end to recognize some of these actionable pieces of information. I can react on it on a daily, weekly, much more um, uh, of a, at a faster clip. And so how much data are you collecting? Does it go far enough back historically? Um, is it aggregated um, in a way where I can consume it as soon as I log in? Right. I don't need to download to Excel to then massage and run through Excel gymnastics. Is it consumable out of the box? Or if it's not consumable out of the box, I use these two terms, is it expandable and extensible? Expandable meaning, can I take what's there and expand it? Do some work on top of it to make it fit my specific need. 
out of the box, most solutions that are sophisticated enough will meet 80% of a user's needs. The last 20% is unique to each user, unique mm-hmm. to each ASC based on their uh, management styles. Oh, or, so their spe- it- or their specialty, yeah. Exactly. Um, and so that last 20%, that's the expandable piece of it. And does the solution allow me to fill the void with that 20%, 15%, 10%, whatever it may be? The extensible piece, what I mean by that is, can I take what I've learned and share with other users that may not be users of the system, but they need that information? They would never log into a solution. They would never have a user profile in that technology solution, but they need the information. And we've seen that uh, no matter who our client is, how large a surgery department or small an ASC, um, there's always going to be a need for you to share that information. That Can that information be shared? Is it extensible enough? And so asking those types of questions for uh, for your listeners to, to start to catalog, right? These are the um, questions that I should be asking. And there's some more details around, um, can I access this from anywhere? Is this, um, can I create push notifications um, so that um, it becomes extensible and it's almost automated, right? So every Monday morning at 7 a.m., I have an email with uh, a report that tells me how my business is running. And so can that be also done for you and your solutions as well? Um, and then from a content perspective, um, ensuring that some of the basic metrics are available there, volume, AR, revenue from a business side of things, how do I measure my bottom line? Those are table stakes to play today. And then what kind of quality metrics are available today? What kind of quality metrics can become available if my documentation improves, I start to capture that clinical documentation uh, better, faster, stronger, and, and and how is this going to grow over time, right? This can't be a static solution. And so if you were to have this conversation 12 months from now, I suspect we're going to geek out over a whole different set of metrics that the industry is now focused on. The table stakes will never change, right? That's the bottom line. And there's value to, ha- to be had there. How do I determine who owes me what amount of money and how long has that happened for? That's always going to be there. Um, but how can I collect it faster? How do I get visibility to it faster? Those are always going to be there. The quality of care metrics are evolving. The clinical outcomes, uh, how do we measure that? And then the, the concerted focus around patient satisfaction and that patient experience um, beyond just what a patient survey collects and, and what a patient's experience was is what we consider a lagging indicator right and so another plug for our listeners to pay attention to as they evaluate uh, these data analytics capabilities and data analytics solutions on top of your ASC solution EMR plus the practice management is how many of those indicators or metrics are leading versus lagging um, and to, to define that a little bit, right? So um, case volume is a lagging indicator because it's ha- already happened. I can't change it. I'm just measuring it after it happens. An example of a leading indicator is um, if I reduce the amount of time when a patient has to arrive prior to their surgery, 
And so if a center says, I ask my patients to arrive two hours prior to their surgery beginning time, and they're there for the pre-op workup and registration and all of that stuff that has to happen before they are scheduled to go in the room. Well, that's two hours that the patient is coming in with their family member, their loved one, and they're waiting. Um, in today's world, they're coming in alone. There's a lot of anxiety that builds up. If you were to reduce that number by 30 minutes, now a patient only has to come in 90 minutes prior to, to surgery, does that improve the patient's experience? We've seen that play out with real world evidence time and time again. If you are to reduce the, um, and I'm referencing kind of this, not a clinical trial, but we ran a thought experiment with uh, a hospital surgery department. They were able to call in their patients 90 minutes instead of 120 minutes prior to surgery. It yielded a measurable difference in their press gainy scores after that. Damn. That's a leading indicator. If I change this, it'll lead to a more optimal outcome. That's a lagging indicator. And so paying attention to how these solutions are providing you with both, you need both lagging indicators, case volume, revenue capture, AR, but also leading indicators that will affect patient satisfaction, quality of care, clinical outcomes. Um, and, and does the data collection support that piece? You know, and, and that kind of leads into uh, kind of how I want to end <laughs> this discussion is uh, dashboards, because what you've just described is, you know, when you try to put together, you know, that Monday morning statistic uh, really gets down to, is there a way to summarize this? As we started this whole conversation, we know how challenging it is to, to get through all that data. How do we put this information together in such a way that our stakeholders have actionable information here. And I think it ultimately comes down to dashboards. So I think as we as we finish up here, a couple of takeaways I want people to have. First of all, look at what you're doing right now in terms of summarizing that information. Are you using a dashboard in your organization? Uh, if you are, that's a good place to start to figure out how some of these solutions that you've just discussed and uh, can can provide you better information or be able to summarize that a lot faster than perhaps many of you are doing if you have manual systems out there. But just as important is making sure, as you indicated, that you're not missing something that you're going to either need in the future or could be very useful to you because your system, if you buy a, a sophisticated one, you know, provides that information almost automatically. I think the... The part that you mentioned that don't just look at now, plan mm -hmm. for the future also, right? Where's the where's the future taking us, and what are the types of things that are going to be required? Um, I'd hate for our industry to constantly have to react to that. Yeah. Um, and I think the technology and the solutions available today puts you a little bit more in the driver's seat. Where, right before the market even pushes you into it you have the, the, the ability and the real world evidence required to compete uh, in the market on, on quality. And, and not, you're not just a value provider of that service, you're the quality provider of that service too, um, right? And, and that can have a, a revenue impact to, for the entire industry. The, so paying attention to both that dashboard that you have today as well as what's going to be needed 12 months, 24 months down the road. So Amit, thank you so much. This has been great. Uh, hopefully our uh, audience got a lot of very valuable information and some actions that they can take right away. And we know we know that uh, EMRs are coming. So this was probably a good way to uh, for you know administrators, nurse managers to start having that conversation with their governing body 
about the other value that comes from um, you know these types of solutions out there, not just the you know not just not just because you're required. I don't. That's never a good sales pitch right now. Is uh, you know the government told me we have to do it. Uh, we want to give them a, a good value proposition. I think you really laid that out well. No, thank you, and and I appreciate the the opportunity to to, to share my thoughts and and geek out with you a little bit, John. So <laughs> that's it. Yeah. Thanks so much. Take it easy. In this segment, we provide an update on upcoming topics for the podcast, our upcoming virtual conferences, and upcoming speaking engagements for John and his staff. So let's talk a little bit about the upcoming topics. We have five that are <laughs> scheduled for uh, mm-hmm. the next month or so. Uh, we're going to have a focus on pharmacy and with an interview with John Karwalski, who's a pharmacy consultant. That's just kind of a kind of an update on what's going on in the pharmacy mm-hmm. world right now. And uh, it is scheduled for next week, assuming that we don't have any crises that occur before <laughs> uh, now and then. Uh, and then we're also going to do a staff edition on pharmacy issues. We haven't done a – you might remember that we created this new staff edition, which, went, which is meant to be a – a shorter podcast meant mm-hmm. for your staff or like staff meetings. Then we're going to interview Scott Magison uh, regarding what to do when your coding or billing staff leaves suddenly. Kind of a fascinating take on uh, emergency management, shall we say. Uh, we're going to do a focus segment on the ASC quality reporting and changes in 2022. Uh, and then we, we're way behind on this one. The annual review of the OIG report on the compliance of accrediting organizations with the conditions for coverage during surveys, which, mm-hmm. again, probably doesn't sound terribly exciting, but it actually is because it, you know that OIG report gives us a lot of insight as to what uh, CMS is looking for in surveys and, mm-hmm. and what some of the common problems are. Yeah. And our upcoming training programs, the Administrators Bootcamp is a virtual training program for new administrators and administrators that are preparing to take the CASC exam. The program includes weekly voluntary drop-in sessions with John and other staff from AHS, access to a large database of information, and a comprehensive four-day virtual training program. The next live program is February 1st through the 4th, 2022, and there's also a self-paced version available at ASCPodcast.com. And all the information about these boot camps are available at ASCPodcast.com. Yeah. So unfortunately, we had some sad news that the New Jersey ASC Association's program, which was supposed to be at the Galloping Hill Country Club, which is a beautiful facility, has been switched to virtual. We're so sorry about this. It's January 26th uh, virtually, and Ann Geyer with our company will be speaking there. And uh, I'll, I don't know what I'm going to be doing right now. I think we're, we're going to try to do a podcast, uh, but that's probably not going to work out. So we'll, we'll figure something out. Um, and then uh, we will be available to talk about our services uh, in New Jersey. And ASCA 2022 will be in Dallas, Texas, April 27th through the 30th, 2022. John will be speaking in a special track for new ASC administrators. Go to ASCassociation.org for more information. And we should point out, I, Sue, I, we have like seven or eight people going to the conference this year. So it's going to be quite yeah, a quite an so. exciting time. And I believe you're not going. I'm not going. I'm going to be. Yeah. Yes. So, Our puppy's uh, going to be... Maybe. <laughs> no, she, she's not a puppy. Not Our grown-up dog is possibly going to be having puppies, right? Or getting ready to right around that time. We just said the whole spring and summer, we I can't don't make quite any dare. long-term commitment. No. So. And, of course, she just snorted when we said that. She's laying between Wait. us here. So and I'm not sure she's excited as excited about having puppies as she we are. She will be. She'll so. be a good mommy. She'll be a great mommy. <laughs> 
And uh, the New Jersey ASC uh, annual conference is going to be June 7th and 8th at the Hilton East Brunswick. Uh, and I'll be speaking about succession planning. Let's all hope and pray that we can uh, uh, do that in person. So at least for now, it is scheduled for that. And don't forget about all of our recorded events. They're all available on ASCpodcast.com. We have the Credentialing Conference, the Fall 2021 Finance and Accounting Conference, Conditions for Coverage Conference, and the Medical Director Conference. We do want to give you all a reminder to uh, become a patron member of the podcast. The patron program, which is also known as ASC Central, is an exclusive membership website that provides a one-stop ASC regulatory and accreditation compliance operations and financial management resource for busy administrators, nurse managers, and business office managers. And resources include access to some of our virtual conferences, links, policies and procedures, forms, drills, and discounts on services and books, and access to AEU credits. Um, and, you know, so we've had some great um, uh, drop-in sessions, too. So patron members, as well as mm-hmm. members of our boot camps, have uh, the ability to uh, drop in on Saturday mornings and uh, visit with us. And if you notice that they are becoming longer and longer, this last week mm-hmm. uh, was an hour and a half, <laughs> and we had a great conversation. I yes. can't remember how many people were on. Uh, but but people even join us. We do it at 10 o'clock in the morning mm-hmm. Eastern, and, and we have a person that logs in from California at 7 a.m. Mm-hmm. their time uh, just to join us on uh, every – Every week, so yeah. um, it's and we a have great... different people all the time, but we we don't tend to. We've got a couple really loyal people that are there every right. time, <laughs> and we don't tend to have a whole lot of people, which makes it really nice because anybody that has any questions that that have happened over the past week or listening to the podcast, they have some questions for John or Ann right. or Lori. You know, they're they're able to talk through that. Right. And they, they often give us some suggestions for mm-hmm. topics. Uh, as a matter of fact, we yep. we talked about this uh, policy manual uh, issue uh, during it, and everybody agreed it would be a good topic for discussion. Yes. Uh, we're also shortly going to be doing some study sessions for people that are studying for the CASC and the CAPE exams. And membership, of course, helps defray the costs of producing the podcast, which includes the research staff, our travel costs to conferences when we do travel to conferences, uh, the exorbitant equipment costs that we have, and, and of course, the ongoing production costs. So for more information, you can visit asc-central.com or just go to ascpodcast.com. So that's it for this episode of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey. And please spread the word about our podcast with your friends and colleagues and do us the honor of hitting the subscribe button. The sound editor for this episode is Susan Cronkite. Executive producer is John Gailey. Research assistance is provided by Susan Cronkite, Jenna Alvarez, Judy D'Ambrosio, Alex Borneman, Zach Calritis, Amy Drabano, Lori Rodericks, and Ann Geyer. Music is provided by Media Sushi and Mike Noah. And the ASC Podcast with John Gailey is hosted on Podbean and is available on all major podcast channels. This episode of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey is sponsored by Surgical Information Systems, SIS. SIS's mission is to deliver solutions and services that help surgery providers, regardless of care setting, improve their organization so they can deliver the highest level of care to their patients. For more information, go to sisfirst.com. This podcast is an educational and operational tool and is not intended to be a comprehensive resource for all rules, regulations, and standards that an ambulatory surgery center must meet. The advice provided should not be considered as, nor does it constitute legal advice or opinion. When reviewing specific situations involving legal and regulatory issues, attorneys and other professionals should be consulted. This has been a production of Eden Group Development. All rights are reserved. If you're interested in advertising or sponsoring the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, please email us at info at ASCpodcast.com. 
We would love to hear your questions and comments. Please email us at comments at ASCPodcast.com. <laughs>